Today's conversation is the final event in a set of conversations we've been having on the history and future of US labor law conversations to shape the future of work. In this series, we've been exploring the role labor laws have played in US history in reshaping work and opportunity, how these laws align with our values about work and opportunity, and what changes in laws or in their implementation might be needed today. This question of value is really important. And you know, it's a question that we often try to bring to the fore in conversations at the Aspen Institute. I think consideration of values is really important to our dialogue about economics and economic policy, about regulations and the rules we choose to guide our economic relationships. But too often values, sort of our human values aren't centered in our conversations about economic policy. Um, we instead sort of focus on uh, the technical realm and, and how well we're encouraging economic growth. So our questions will revolve around, are we producing more goods and services, but not whether those goods and services are making us healthier or improving our well-being. Um, we'll focus on, are we producing more jobs, but not, are they good jobs, jobs that support a decent standard of living and a dignified livelihood? We'll ask, are we creating, are our businesses profitable? Uh, are the markets going up? But we don't ask sort of how those profits are being distributed and are they really making us all better off? So fundamentally, we don't ask whether our economic policies are advancing some of the values we hold dear and values we talk about a lot at the Aspen Institute. Are, are we more free? Are, is our society more just and more equitable? Do our choices help us bring us together as a nation or are they driving us apart? And in no area of economic policy is it more important to start asking these questions about our values and how well they align with our laws than in the area of labor law. Because a society in which most people earn a living by working cannot be a good society without a set of standards and rights related to work that are aligned with our values of freedom, justice, and equity. In this series, we've been discussing how our labor laws have responded to problematic working conditions, how they've improved work and lives for millions why it was necessary in the 1930s to protect workers' rights to organize and bargain collectively, why it was necessary to establish a basic standard for wages and hours and to prohibit child labor, why it was necessary in the 1960s at long last to forbid discrimination on the basis of race, gender, ethnicity, or religion in employment, and how laws enacted in the 1970s that set standards for safety and health at work have protected human health and saved countless lives. Our labor laws have certainly had their flaws, to be sure, but they have done much to make things better. But today, we're in an economy that's vastly different from the 1970s, let alone the 1930s, and we face new challenges for working people. Quality jobs, jobs that provide economic stability, agency, and respect, and opportunities for advancement are simply too rare today. The Brookings Institution found that 53 million working adults, about a third of the labor market, earned low hourly wages in 2019. The Me Too movement reveals the endemic workplace harassment too often experienced by women. Research on occupational segregation shows not only that it exists, but that the more women are concentrated in occupation and the more people of color are concentrated in occupation, the lower that occupation pays. This result is not just a market dynamic, it is also a societal choice. The job of a home health aide, for example, 
an occupation dominated by women, particularly women of color and immigrant women, is a poverty wage job by policy choice. Policy choice is made by our elected representatives, which in a democracy means that all of us bear some responsibility for these choices. So are these choices on labor market regulation and policy in line with our values around work, around opportunity, around freedom, justice, and equity? These are, the these are the questions we're going to talk about today. We have a fantastic panel to talk about these questions today, and I am going to introduce them soon. But before we begin, we have a wonderful audience in the room, but we have a wonderful audience joining us online. I'm so excited about that. We're thrilled to have so many people joining us today. Um, if you're online, please uh, use the Slido box on your right side of your screen to submit questions. Uh, thank you for those who submitted questions in advance. We'll try to get to as many of people's questions as we can today. Um, please use the ideas tab to share your ideas. Uh, and before you leave, please use the polls tab to give us some feedback about this event. Um, if you're tweeting, use the hashtag talk opportunity. And also if you're joining um, outside sort of um, the uh, StreamYard way of joining, uh, you can tweet us questions as well. If you have any technical issues, please email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org or you can put a note in the chat. The event is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website and closed captions are available. Uh, click the CC button at the bottom of your video. Okay, <laughs> now we have the wonderful pleasure of introducing our first speaker, uh, Aspen Institute President Dan Porterfield. Um, Dan has been president of the Institute since 2018. Um, and prior to joining the Institute, Dan had a wonderful, wonderful career. I'm not going to read you his bio, you should read it. He's amazing. Um, the thing I truly appreciate, Dan, is how, well, one, I appreciate how supportive he's been of me and of the work of the Economic, economic Opportunities Program, but I really appreciate his fundamental dedication to the human values, to the values of uh, a free, just, and equitable society. He has been uh, really very strong on that in all of the work that he does. Um, uh, his dedication to equity is, has been really inspiring for many of us. And so, Dan, I'm so glad you can join us today to kick off our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Maureen. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, here in person and that Super Bowl-sized audience online, um, it's uh, wonderful to be in person and also to be, uh, to be hybrid because that's a way we can reach even more people in this kind of gathering that needs to reach even more people. Uh, I'd like to begin, though, by acknowledging the pain and the suffering in the aftermath of the atrocities in Uvalde, Buffalo, and elsewhere. Um, I don't really have anything profound to say. How many times can we just say that such wanton gun violence is unacceptable and wrong? And then what? Um, and just look at where it happens. It happens in schools, supermarkets, subways, movie theaters, strip malls places of worship, places that we go every single day, places where people go to work every single day. And as we're thinking about workers, I think today is a good day to think about Aaron Garcia and even Morales, who are probably two of the greatest heroes of our time who lost their lives. Um, and with that, Victoria Lay Soto, Sandy Hook, and Aaron Salter and Haywood Patterson who worked at Tops Friendly Markets. 
and the three staff killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and this goes on. Um, just a moment of quiet. So Maureen, thank you to you and to your team for everything you do and for putting this together. And you heard Maureen use the words free, just, and equitable a couple of different times. And it was Maureen's work with others at the Institute over four years ago, where we began to think about that framing as a way that organizes so many of our commitments and working for a free, just, and equitable society, which we're doing in the US. We're also doing places like Ukraine, where we have this institute, where the word freedom, you know, it's like in bold letters now. Um, there's so much we can learn when we think of those big concepts, which of course have to be interpreted and worked through in any given era. What does it mean, freedom? What does it mean, justice? What does equity mean? And that's a conversation we should want to have, even if the concepts themselves require care and listening and flexibility sometimes in what do we mean. It's better to be talking about them than to simply <coughs> say, well, we want something better. Well, you know, what are the values that organize that? Um, so Maureen, to your team, thank you, because you embody free, just, and equitable as a group, as a person, as a leader. Um, and this, this panel certainly reflects it too. Um, so Jazz, Don, Dorian, Ivan, thank you so much uh, for making time to be with us in person. I also want to call out uh, a good friend of mine who's in the audience. He was trying to be incognito with Joe McCartan, who is a labor historian at Georgetown. Uh, Joe, thank you for coming. And you know, Maureen went to Holy Cross, and I went to Georgetown. There's a whole Catholic social tradition of labor rights and social justice, and so we 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 speak that secret language. Um, maybe others do here too. Um, so uh, this conversation, workers' bill of rights, uh, what we want and how we get there, arrives at a seminal moment in our country's history. Courageous and inspiring workers, many of them women and people of color. One of them here today um, are organizing across industries and across the, the country in numbers we really haven't seen in a long time. They've stated clearly and firmly that work, the way we do business and our economy need to change. I think it's clear these workers want what so many in the country, they're not just speaking as a, a sort of a a dedicated, growing, but still few, but quite the opposite of challenge, values shared very widely. They want a good and stable income, safe working conditions, benefits to help them take care of themselves and their families, the opportunity to grow and to advance. And who wouldn't want those things? Who wouldn't want someone to not have those things? They want a successful economy that provides the foundation within which those securities and opportunities can flourish. An economy that can really only be successful, though, if it's inclusive. And that actually is one of the stories of the last 20 years, I would argue, maybe longer in America, but that we see inclusion on the sort of retreat, and we also see an economy that's really under tremendous stress in all sorts of ways. An inclusive economy is one where women, where people of color, where immigrants are not steered and trapped into the lowest wage jobs. It's one that treats and rewards essential workers as essential. It's one that is free of exploitation, of harassment, of discrimination. It's one where workers have the right to organize and to address workplace <laughs> issues free of intimidation and threat. An inclusive economy 
is one where everyone gets their shot at what is still celebrated as the American dream. That dream that if you work hard and play by the rules, you can build a good life for yourself and your family. But that dream is just that, a dream for far too many people, millions and millions of people all across the economy, in the informal economy, in, in the formal economy, uh, in all sorts of ways, doing what we value as a country and yet struggling to meet basic needs. Workers' rights, protections, worker voice are all critical and vital parts of building an inclusive economy. They're actually foundational to how a solid uh, economy functions and operates both for workers and for businesses. And since work is such a big part of our lives, we talk about it all day long, we spend all this time at work, worker rights are also a large part of us, how our society works. So what are society's solutions to advancing worker rights, worker protections, and worker voice? What values underpin these rights? So they're not only words on paper, but principles that we live breathe and teach, discuss, and are proud of. I think this last question that you're here to address is really important. You know, what is a right? Um, and it's worth time to sort that out. Is it an entitlement? Is it a legally binding contract? Is it a need? Is it a demand? Is it a protection? You're, you're all going to think about that. One of the ways I've thought about a right, though, is that it adheres to the individual and their dignity so strongly that it entails the responsibility of others to ensure and secure it. I'm not sure if that definition works in the context you're thinking about it here today, but it, it is a pretty strong definition of a right, that your right is my responsibility. My right is your responsibility. And if that's really how we understand the word rights when we use it, then we are enmeshed together in a network and a community of rights delivering people. But that's a lot to ask. And so you may have a better definition of right, and we'll, we'll see how you all think about it. Um, so Maureen, I want to turn it back to you one more time to thank our panelists, to thank our attendees, to thank the, those watching and participating online. Have a great workshop, discussion, panel discussion, and um, best wishes for um, very successful, fruitful outcome from this work. I am not going to say very much at all other than to say we have a great panel here and now you get to hear from them. Um, so uh, next, uh, let's see. So furthest away from me is Ai-jen Hu, president of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, let's see, next to Ai-jen is Don Howard, president and CEO of the James Irvine Foundation. Um, next to Don is Jazz Brissack, barista and organizing committee member of Starbucks Workers United. Um, I'm hoping we're going to get Linda Nguyen, uh, who is Chief of Staff for the United Food and Commercial Workers Union Local 770. There she is up on the screen. Hooray. Um, alas, in the times we live in, these are the things that we do. So, um, so but I'm very grateful Linda can uh, join us virtually um, from the hotel around the corner. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, and next to me is uh, the uh, wonderful uh, Dorian Warren, my friend, um, head of 
uh, Center for Community Change. Um, he also has an amazing bio. Um, I had so many things written down to write about him. Um, he's co-author of The Hidden Rules of Race, co-author of Race and American Political Development, author of numerous academic articles. He's brilliant, um, and I am sure you will enjoy the discussion he leads. Thank you so much, Dorian, for doing that. Take it away. Here we go. So first off, thank you to Dan, but especially thank you to Maureen and the entire economic opportunity team here at Aspen. Um, Maureen, I think I've known you over a decade now and just watching you work and watching the evolution of this work here at Aspen, um, it's just been phenomenal. So thank you for all the labor you have put in and this issue around economic opportunity and workers' rights. Um, and I'm going to start with just some opening comments and then I want to get you all talking. Mm -hmm. um, and talking to each other. So just to start, I want to remind us all that, yes, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. It is not over. And living through these last two years in the midst of a pandemic has um, lots of ramifications for all of our lives, but especially in the lives of workers and essential workers, which unfortunately is a term we hear less and less of today. Um, so I want to actually raise that again. And I know I just going to talk a lot about this. Um, but there's a lot going on right now, including the pandemic, including, frankly, a tight labor market that has been very good for workers, and especially workers who have been organizing for their rights. And arguably now is the time, and Jazz and I are going to say a lot about this, it's the time for workers to agitate everywhere mm -hmm. around um, dignity and respect and better conditions. And so today we are going to hear from organizers and activists and allies who are supporting the range of efforts around the country. Um, of workers demanding better from their, for the, from their jobs. Workers who are voting with their feet, actually, um, quitting bad jobs for good jobs. Workers who are organizing to create unions to collectively bargain for wages, for benefits, and working conditions. And as some of you probably know, unions are now more popular than ever, and especially among younger workers. Um, there's a lot of action in the streets and at the workplace right now. So a couple of weeks ago, um, with teachers and providers, there was a childcare strike. But of course, I think we've all been celebrating the wins of organizing into unions at Amazon and especially jazz at Starbucks around the country. So we're going to dig into that pretty shortly. Everywhere, workers are organizing. Um, and it's very exciting. And I'm looking at an old friend, Beth Cantor, and the audience um, who worked for the Chicago Federation of Labor many years ago um, when I was also in Chicago organizing. And this is a sea change from when we were in our 20s. <laughs> right? I um, something different is happening. We're going to dig into that much more. A few other quick thoughts. For many workers, this is the first time, frankly, in decades, that they can expect better from their jobs and they are demanding better from their jobs. We have been living through 50 years of declining wages, declining job standards, declining rates, And something's happening in this moment. Um, there's also something happening at the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board. Mm -hmm. Something really interesting. So I'm gonna invite any of our panelists to talk about that. Let me remind us that not everything is rosy. The black unemployment rate is still twice as high as the white unemployment rate. Women, especially women of color, have yet to recover fully from the pandemic and continue to face barriers in the job market. We've already heard about occupational segregation, flexible labor markets, gendered labor um, patterns, all play a role, all these things play a role in actual rights to the workplace. 
So let me shut up and get our panelists talking. I did, I'm coming to you first because I want you to talk to us around <coughs> your work of the last roughly two decades. I know you started at a very young age, but you have been the leading organizer and voice, and especially around a workers' bill of rights for domestic workers when nobody else was talking about this. I remember when you were in New York State and New York City doing this work. And so talk to us, tell us a little bit about your journey in this work and where you think we are today in this movement around care and care workers and where you hope we'll be tomorrow. Mm, big questions. <laughs> um, I'm so glad to be here. And thank you so much, Maureen, for your years of work in the field and creating more and more space for workers and worker organizations to be in these conversations. Um, and I'm so proud to be on this panel of such incredible bravery. Bravery from Don, who was one of the first funders to make a big bet on worker power. And it has made all the difference to movements like ours. Bravery of Jazz, who is on the front lines organizing and building worker power in Buffalo and around the country. And bravery from Dorian, who has been in the trenches with me literally now for Almost 15. Okay. Um, so, you know, I just for context, I organize with domestic workers. So it's the nannies, the house cleaners, and the home care workers who work inside of our homes providing caregiving and cleaning services. It's overwhelmingly women, 92% women, majority women of color, including many immigrant and undocumented women. And it's the work that makes everything else possible because it helps to ensure that all of us can go and do what we want to do in the world, knowing that some of the most important parts of our lives are in good hands. But it's also some of the most insecure and undervalued work in our economy. And when I first started working with domestic workers, um, it really felt like the Wild West. And for most workers today, it still does. Um, there were no standards, no guidelines, even if you were an employer who wanted to do the right thing, it was unclear what that was. And to many, it still is, right? So you could have a family who would pay you a living wage, maybe even cover your healthcare expenses and treat you with respect where the relationship was really quite positive and healthy or the entire other end of the spectrum and we've seen so many cases of human trafficking, rape and sexual assault, non-payment of wages for years. I mean, the kinds of things, the kinds of abuses that are really unimaginable. And it's because it was, there were no standards, guidelines, norms in place. It was a free-for-all. And so in New York City in the mid-90s, beginning in some immigrant communities, women started to gather collectively and share their stories and imagine a framework for what it could be like if our rights were, as workers were respected and recognized. And we started to gather first in church basements and immigrant community centers. And in November <coughs> of 2003, a whole bunch of different collections and collectives of domestic workers gathered in a union hall and shared their ideas for what it would feel like to actually have a bill of rights to actually have a set of rights and protections that would affirm the dignity of their work, that would allow them to go to work every day with their heads held high, 
knowing that they are contributing, contributing and their contributions are being valued and recognized. And 2003, that was the birth of the New York Domestic Workers Bill of Rights campaign. And seven years later, New York became the first state in the country to pass the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. After year after year, people told us it would never be possible. Mm -hmm. um, and today, 12 states have passed Domestic Workers Bills of Rights. <laughs> and several municipalities are experimenting with taking it one step further. And the reason why this is significant is because there's a generational, there's a long legacy of explicit exclusion from labor rights and protections that this workforce has been subjected to, rooted in our history of slavery in this country. Um, and we don't want to just be protected by 1930s labor laws. We actually want protections that reflect today's economy, work environment and result in good jobs for the 21st century. So we are innovating and building on that. It includes being really proactive about what the care economy, which is what domestic workers are a part of, right? What that should look like, including making sure that people have access to affordable childcare, um, home and community-based care, and every job in the care economy can be a good job. And we're hoping that these bills of rights and our work to invest in the care economy and make care more affordable and accessible to everyone is helping us to get there. That's Thank the vision. You. Thank you, Aijin. And Jazz, I want to come to you next. And let me give a little bit of context. Um, Dan, I want to thank you for bringing our attention um, to this period of violence in which we find ourselves. And I want to remind people uh, we have a labor historian in the room, so he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, American labor history among all rich democracies is the most violent and bloody. We kind of forget that and sanitize it, but especially the 19th century organizing efforts of workers, the bloodiest, most violent suppression of workers' rights has been in this country among all rich democracies. Let that sink in for a second. Secondly, um, obviously before, the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. Jazz, I was thinking a lot about Buffalo the last two weeks because, of course, this Saturday will be two weeks since the violence in Buffalo. But I don't want to stay there. Okay. So the other story, and I've been reminding people, there's like two stories out of Buffalo in the last several months. There's the awful hate-motivated murders and massacre, right, of two weeks ago. But there's a there's lightness coming out of Buffalo. And that is the incredible organizing of you and your colleagues to organize the first two Starbucks in the entire country in Buffalo in December, if I'm not mistaken. So I want us to focus on that for, for a few minutes, yeah? And just to explain to folks, um, and again, Professor McCartan will correct me if I'm wrong, what you and your colleagues did in Buffalo is a watershed moment in labor history. Like historians can be writing about what you did in Buffalo for decades. Mm -hmm. It's a watershed moment. First two Starbucks organizing the country. So that's my invitation to you to tell us a bit about those worker organizing efforts. Um, tell us about you and your coworkers in Buffalo, why you got involved, and what the last year or two has meant to you and your coworkers. Thank you for the question. And I'm so excited to be here with everybody. Um, 
I mean, I came into this, I don't know if I would call myself a labor historian, I'm not a very good historian, I'm not objective in the slightest, um, but I'm a labor history nerd. And at 16, I was working at a Panera Bread in Alcoa, Tennessee. And I you know, was getting underpaid, minimum wage was $7.25 and as it is, and I was getting paid $7.50. And they told me you know, that was proof that they were a good employer because they paid more than minimum wage. Mm -hmm. um, and they promised me a raise. And you know, I had just read Eugene Debs for the first time and been like, oh my God, workers have power. This is how the world should be. So I marched myself into the boss's office and I was like, you know, I demand my raise and I demand that you train me like you said you were going to. And if you don't, I'm going to quit. And I thought they were just going to you know, roll over and respect workers' rights. And they were like, okay, well, bye. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, at the time, it would have been unthinkable to unionize um, a pair of red in East Tennessee. Um, that's, I think, not the case. And as my coworker, Michelle Eisen, says, she works at the Elmwood store with me and has for 11 years. Um, organizing is the ultimate group project. So, you know, I'm representing literally thousand, a thousand plus workers on the Starbucks Workers United Organizing Committee. Um, but I think, you know, we starting out this campaign, um, we had very high expectations. Um, Starbucks says that they're, you know, a very progressive company, a different kind of company, that they don't want to see us as workers, they want to see us as partners. Um, so our slogan was partners becoming partners. And our ask was that they sign on to the fair election principles. And, you know, if they had an anti-union meeting, we would have equal time to have a pro-union meeting. And, you know, if they fired somebody, then, you know, that would go to arbitration so that nobody would be afraid that they were going to get unfairly fired. And we really thought, you know, they were going to live up to what they said they were and do all of these things. And boy, were we wrong. Um, so it went very quickly from, you know, we could organize all of Starbucks into the industrial union project of organizing the food service industry in Buffalo to we're gonna we're gonna fight for our lives to win even one union Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been incredible to see so many stores organizing. I think it the impact of this sink in for me, I was numb when Elmwood won because it was so much stress and anxiety and people, you know, had told us maybe that they were gonna vote one way and then Fear and union busting and all of the accumulation had changed some of that. Um, but it's same again when I got to go to Knoxville to be with those workers when their vote count was happening. It was they'd endured, you know, insane union busting. The management had been, you know, calling the most incredible, kind, caring union leader, um, like all of these names and trying to pit everyone against her and making it a very personal campaign because they couldn't win on the issues they were trying to win on the personalities. Um, and when they won and proved that it was possible to organize a coffee shop in East Tennessee, we did. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I'm going to come back to you in a few minutes to say more about that. But Linda, we want to get you in a conversation, and then Donna will come to you. Um, well, Linda, the, the last couple of years, you know, we, we began with the pandemic, and you and your union sort of right at the center of the workers experiencing um unsafe working conditions in particular throughout this pandemic with the United Food and Commercial Workers. So tell us about your background, the UFCW, and any initial reflections you have on the national discourse and conversation around essential workers and their experiences over the last two years. Yeah, thank you, Dorian, and thank you to Aspen and 
um, the Economics Opportunities Program and our panelists uh, today, and Maureen in particular for this opportunity. Um, so at the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 770, that's that's where I um, am from. We represent 31,000 essential workers um, from LA up to the central coast of California. Um, and these are predominantly working class, people of color, women of color, immigrant folks, and increasingly young workers. Um, and, uh, you know, the majority of our, our members are grocery workers. And, um, you know, when the pandemic happened and the world essentially shut down, our members were put into this sort of into the spotlight in the center of the conversation. And I think, you know, workers being centered in particular, essential workers being centered in the conversation in the national discourse um, has been incredibly important. It's about time. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, when things shut down, we had a moment of reckoning, right, as a society, as um, really seeing that, you know, it's not bankers, right? It's not Wall Street. It's not corporations and, and global CEOs that are essential. It is workers that are essential. It is, it is the folks on the ground that are making your food, that are caring for you in our hospitals, right, that are brewing your coffee, that are teaching your kids, right, like moving your products in warehouses and at Amazon. These are the folks that are essential, that are keeping us fed and healthy and giving us all of our essential goods. And, you know, what was revealed, right, when the curtain was pulled back that is that, you know, workplaces are not safe, right? And workers were exposed um, far too much, few too many uh, safety gaps and holes that put workers' lives at risk. And that these jobs that essential workers are in are incredibly precarious, right? And the wages are not sufficient to allow them to sustain a living wage and to support their families. And that workers have not had, you know, sufficient protections to be able to have a voice on the job, right? So being able to have, you know, and form a union like um, you all, Jazz, like, and, and to be able to uh, organize and to run collective actions is incredibly key Right, we found at 770 and with our grocery workers to ensuring that there are workplace safety, uh, safety and regulations put into place, right? And that workers are at the center of driving the solutions and, and crafting the policies and enacting them and in real time being able to enforce them. So these things that the pandemic has revealed are things that workers have always needed, gaps and issues that grocery workers have always faced um, and will continue to need. And I guess, Good yeah, yeah. I guess my last reflection about this great resignation, right, is that it is it is not a resignation. It is an informal uh, general strike, right? So we're seeing informal and formal strikes happening across the economy. And I think it is like, such an important moment right now in history that we're, we're sitting in. <clears throat> I'm really appreciating this opportunity. Thanks, London. I'll make sure I come back to you in a few minutes. But Don, I'm going to get you in because I'm the issue of workers' rights comes up. Um, I'm pretty sure no one first thinks of plan. <laughs> so talk to us a bit about, you know, the context of, yes, there have been some foundations that have invested in workers' rights and worker power and improving working conditions, but not a lot. I'm pretty sure it's been lonely for you. So I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself and the Irvine Foundation. Why in the hell did the foundation say we're gonna actually take a big risk? and invest in worker power and workers' rights. And any other thoughts you have to begin with on where we are right now in terms of the relationship of philanthropy and workers' rights. But like, how, why Irvine? Why you, like, why? Yeah. Uh, thanks, first again, thanks for including me. 
thanks for the comment about bravery, but I feel like an interloper. <laughs> Folks doing real organizing work and um, being in the trenches. Um, I have the privilege of being at a private foundation. Irvine Foundation is independent of any company or family. We're focused exclusively on California, and our mission is to expand opportunity. Um, we chose in 2015 to uh, to move for a singular focus on ensuring that every low-income California worker has the power to advance economically. And we did that very mindful of both being singularly focused on the issue and naming it as one of the handful, we thought two at the time, uh, existential threats to uh, our society and our economy. Um, and we came at it, um, it's interesting, uh, during the debilitative of risk. There was some perception of risk when we decided to uh, to focus in this way. And I'm eager, as I talk to other philanthropic leaders, to de-risk this decision and have folks understand how important it is to support uh, workers' power in the economy. Um, we have a guiding principle to our work, which is that workers should have the power to influence the decisions that affect their lives, in their workplace, in the economy, and in society overall. And we invest in career pathway programs and workforce development and training and there are amazing uh, career pathway programs out there. It is uh, very, very important for individuals to get trained, but it is not sufficient in terms of advancing the cause of low-wage workers across the economy. Power building is essential to making that happen. And it took a little while as an institution for us to appreciate that. We did start um, when, in our new work in 2016, 2017, with those two training and power building in parallel because we recognized that they needed to work in tandem to create a level playing field for all workers in the, in the economy. Um, and we're proud to support organizations like uh, IGEN and the National Domestic Workers Alliance and other worker centers in 501c3 format, uh, worker uh, collectives uh, that are bringing low-wage workers uh, into common cause to demand better wages, better working conditions, and a real pathway into the middle class um, it's you know, just that, um, as you mentioned, other foundations, there are several, Ford, Open Society, Kellogg, and Omidyar all invest significantly in this space, but philanthropy could do a heck of a lot more to support worker power building. And I'll just say as a bit of an aside, and in doing so, in addition to uh, rebuilding America's middle class, reestablishing economic mobility, um, we address racial inequities when we uh, build worker power. Uh, there is such a long history of systemic racism in our economy. You've heard it in various ways here. And uh, in California, 80% workers are workers of color and 40% are immigrants. So when we empower low-wage workers, we are empowering people of color to demand better of the systems in our economy. Um, and I also think we are, I hope, contributing to help our democracy heal. I believe that the um, income inequality that we see in our society and the declines in economic mobility have been one of the drivers of the kind of populist, um, uh, divisive rhetoric that we've seen uh, you know, sort of uh, take our political process hostage. Wow. Um, thank you so much, Don. Uh, a lot more to come back to you later on in terms of philanthropy, but Jazz, I'm going to come to you and then go to Linda to really lift up and have a conversation about the worker experience that would inform a worker bill of rights. And talk to us, please, a bit more about your experience organizing in Buffalo. 
with your coworkers. Like, what was it like to try to exercise a right um, that has not been enforced for way too long? Um, what were some of the challenges you experienced? And based on your experience, what do you think needs to be strengthened? So nine months ago, we started our campaign publicly and you know started out with this very optimistic view that you know paradox might actually respect our right to organize. And um, so we were going to you know potentially have a much easier go of this. And within about a week, they had flown in um, Rossanne Williams, the president of Starbucks North America, and at least 150 other managers, executives, senior vice presidents, et cetera. Um, they called this the Buffalo SWAT team. They occupied our stores. Um, you know, normally, if you were opening the store, it would be you know a couple of us um, chatting with no management presence, um, which made it easy to you know start signing cards at work. There's no non-work area in a Starbucks. There's the back room and the front of house and there's always people around. Um, but it, it used to be that there were not managers in those areas. So we were signing cards on the floor, having um, organizing conversations as we were standing up. And when they sent in these managers, um, all of that changed. There was never a space where we could talk without somebody listening. Um, you know, people were being pulled off the floor for one-on-ones. We were having, you know, weekly captive audience meetings where they were telling us, you know, you could lose all your benefits. Some workers were even dragged into makeup captive audience meetings where it would be, you know, one of them and six managers um, telling them all of the horrible things that would happen to them if they voted no. Um, and I think um, this kind of goes to what you were saying about how it you know, used to be very physically dangerous to organize a union. Union busing has evolved. It's not gotten any kinder, but it, now it's psychological warfare. Um, Starbucks weaponized anything that they could find to try to make people vulnerable and powerless. Um, one example is a lot of workers have, um, you know, very open mental health um, struggles and a lot of workers, you know, decorate their aprons with various pins. One Starbucks partner wore a suicide awareness pin that she'd worn for years since she'd been hired. And they started targeting her every day, saying that that pin was an attack on management, that she shouldn't be allowed to wear that, that she was going to get fired if she didn't take off her pin. Um, and, you know, they've literally put workers uh, you know, on mental health leaves of, uh, of absence and just really, really exploited, um, you know, what they see as, you know, vulnerabilities that will make people step back from unionizing. It's completely unconscionable and, you know, really fundamental human rights violations. Um, and meanwhile, you know, they're still presenting themselves as this great company, and we're the ones who are untrue to the mission and values instead of, you know, recognizing that what they're doing is torturing workers. I want to follow up with you, because you, did you say 150? At least. At least, we're flown into Buffalo, um, and then you just said that Starbucks is, you know, they were really exploiting people's vulnerabilities. Um, I'm sitting with that because how awful, right? But it's not working. Like I checked this on, on last night. My latest data of union elections at Starbucks, the win rate is 85 to 10 in favor of workers. 85, that, that is like 
mind-blowing for those of you who know anything about union elections. 85 wins, only 10 losses. So Jess, tell us why the company who is spending millions of dollars to exploit people's vulnerabilities, as you just said, why are they losing? Why are, why are you and your colleagues winning? I mean, I think, first of all, I want to address the part about it, it not working because I think we don't know what we don't know about, you know, which stores haven't reached out to us because they scorched the earth by sending in um, managers to terrify people, which stores, you know, had the key committee leaders quit or which ones were shut down for a remodel and, you know, that fizzled it out. Um, I think without the union busting, we would have seen a lot more organizing and definitely speedier victories. Um, but I think, you know, people are organizing here because this is our last chance to really have um, a voice and power and save, you know, what this job should be and what this company should be. And people came to work at Starbucks because they really believed that, you know, this was a social justice company. This was a place where it was safe to be trans, where it was, you know, safe to advocate for Black Lives Matter. They gave us Black Lives Matter t-shirts that looked like picket signs and bullhorns and all of these things. And then they suddenly expect, you know, um, people to, you know, go along with, oh, we're so sustainable, we're so pro-LGBT rights, we're so pro-racial justice, but we're union busters. And everybody's like, that's, you can't be all of those things and be a union buster or something's fundamentally hollow. Thank you for that. Um, Linda, I want to get you back in the conversation because folks that don't know, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union spans a number of industries, but especially includes a lot of workers in grocery stores. And these workers experienced some of the biggest, most significant challenges during the pandemic, continue to do so, um, and not just related to low pay, but also, of course, health and safety. So talk to us about what stood out to you in terms of workers' experiences and treatment in the workplace. And what does it tell us about where we're falling short and what needs to be done? Yeah. Um, I think what stands out the most for me um, in the work over the last couple of years in pandemic is really the callousness of corporations, right? The greed and the callousness of big grocery corporations that today are dominated by multinational companies, um, foreign companies, callousness of companies like Amazon and Instacart, how capitalism cannot function without white supremacy and anti-Blackness, right? How necessary and reliant these companies are on the exploitation of working class and people of color and women of color specifically. And also in contrast to that is the incredible solidarity and the mutual aid and the beautiful work of workers coming together in their unions or coming together to form their unions, right? Um, to run collective actions really rooted in love. Um, and I think back to the beginning one LA for shut down in mid-March. Um, we hold town halls every single week with like 6,000, 8,000 workers coming on the telephone to share their stories of, and the horrific things that were unfolding before their eyes when, I don't know if you all remember those days when there was panic buying, right? And there was nothing on the grocery store shelves and everything was flying off and workers themselves couldn't buy basic things like water or dried beans or rice for their own families to take care of themselves. And there was no science yet to support COVID and to understand how it was being transmitted and workers 
were on the phone with us in the thousands crying, you know, pleading, you know, asking for things like the, the, the ability to wear masks and being told that, you know, their, their managers were telling workers in the grocery stores, you know, that um, if they wore masks, they were going to get suspended um, and sent home from work because the masks were going to scare customers and the customers would not come and shop if they felt like their the grocery stores were dangerous. And in response, right, because the workers were being denied this right, the union came together and we made masks, right? That said, mm. union workers paid for these masks. And this was early April, we ran our first action. You know, everything was still shut down at this point. And thousands of workers, 30,000 workers were wearing these to work in silent protest and managers were freaking out. The companies were freaking out. And you know what, it taught, and it, it really taught these workers that they had incredible power, you know, and if they came together and they stood up and they demanded things that they needed to protect themselves, the world was gonna pay attention. And I think, you know, after that first mass action, you know, as workers began to get really sick and ill in those early days before the medicine was there, you know, workers were telling us that they were afraid to test because they couldn't, they couldn't deal with getting a negative test because they didn't have enough sick time because they couldn't afford to be sick because they had bills to pay. And so many of their other family members and people in their household could not work. And so workers came together and the union came and we fought for COVID sick pay, right? And we fought for you know, contact tracing and notification to workers so that, you know, they could quarantine and they could isolate and they could protect themselves. And then we fought for things like hazard pay, right? Um, because workers were not able to pay for very basic needs like proper housing, adequate housing. In an industry where workers are surrounded by food, 78% of grocery workers in our local are experiencing hunger and food insecurity, right? We have a member who shared with us that she's a single mom, she's surrounded by food and she has to feed her kids instant ramen and hot dogs because she cannot afford anything else because for her it's a choice between being housed or feeding her children. And so some of the stories where we've heard, you know, have been really devastating, you know, in terms of the conditions in the workplace and, you know, um, although devastating, you know, I think on the other side of it is the incredible support from community, from shoppers, from elected officials, members of the public. And that has really bolstered workers um, and helped support grocery workers to really stand in their power, right? There has been an awakening of these workers and, you know, they're standing up <laughs> and they're demanding better and fighting for things like hazard pay, right? Um, and when we stood up and fought for hazard pay in the, in the grocery stores, right, for a temporary $5 increase that allowed workers for the first time, right, to have a savings, for the first time to buy fresh food for their children, right? Um, to be able to afford to put a deposit down, a security deposit for an apartment the companies retaliated by shutting down three grocery stores to create a chilling effect. 
So the callousness of these companies is really what stands out to me and also the bravery of workers to stand up and fight back, right? And recently we ratified a historic contract because workers got a taste of hazard pay where we stood up and fought and won for it and they were not gonna let it go. And workers knew, right? Grocery workers know what they deserve. Essential workers know what they deserve and fought for more. And, you know, we're turning the corner and we are not going to allow these companies to pay poverty wages anymore and to mistreat workers anymore. Linda, I, I wanna do a quick follow-up with you um, with a little bit of a personal story. I'm gonna try to not get emotional about it, but the hazard pay and health and safety and resonates deeply for me because my sister-in-law who lives in Chicago was a cook at Whole Foods. Um, she was classified as an essential worker. She had to agitate for masks um, because the company owned by Amazon would not um, provide them. She had to agitate for a stable schedule because she had a five-year-old at the time. And early on, she got COVID at work, we think. Um, then her family got COVID. Um, she has long COVID. So it's still suffering from the effects of company decisions back in March, 2020. And it's made her angry. She ultimately quit. Um, after like being a, a very lonely agitator. And it's, it's both angering um, and enraging. And it raises something I, wanna, I want you to emphasize, and especially because I know you represent workers in meatpacking. Um, oftentimes we think of unions, we think immediately of wages and more pay. But talk to us a bit about the importance of health and safety, like literally life and death. And I know there's been so much work you've been doing in meatpacking. So if you're a meat eater, Thank the UFCW um, and the workers in particular who have been still going to work in very dangerous conditions, already one of the most, if not the most dangerous job in America, but going and also right as essential workers. Talk to us about the role of health and safety in addition, of course, to wages, but it's just like, I just want people to understand something about, it's not all just about the cash when it comes to human dignity at work. Absolutely. You know, especially in those early days when the medicine wasn't there and the science wasn't there, right? And PPE was so difficult to come by and the CDC was not acknowledging that masks were critical, right? Mm. Um, workers, you know, in our union, our members were fighting for the ability, you know, to be deputized and to have the power to make changes in real time in order to protect themselves and their coworkers and ultimately their families at home, right? Because it was a life or death situation, right? Things like being able to enforce social distancing, right? Things like being able to enforce occupancy rates in grocery stores or on the line while they're, you know, uh, cutting meat, right? And processing meat, being able to have, you know, safety guards in between and appropriate distancing on the line on either side to be able to protect themselves and their families, right? At a time when vaccination in particular was not available is so critical. You know, we had a worker who, you know, she came from a family of other central workers. It was a household of roughly maybe five folks, uh, a Latinx worker. She became sick from being at work and not having, you know, the ability to properly socially distance because of the way her work was structured. And because she was in a family that was working class and could not afford housing 
uh, where she could isolate properly, she had to saran wrap herself in her bunk bed because she did not know what else to do. And she was deathly afraid of making her family members sick and potentially die. Like, this is the kind of thing that I'm trying not to get emotional now because, mm. you know, this is the kind of thing that workers have to deal with. You know, I remember visiting a grocery store when our first member died in, in April and it was devastating. You know, a baker in the back where, you know, it's largely monolingual, you know, immigrant women who are doing the work that is unseen, right? This work is gendered and specifically it's often immigrant women that are put in the back and away from customers in tight quarters with no ventilation, no ability to social distance, working incredibly long hours because workers are turning over and leaving work that is incredibly dangerous. And it's just completely unacceptable. It's life or death. Thank you, Linda. Um, want everybody to take just a breath. Um, and I want to appreciate you and your and that emotion because we are living through a time where we have all become way too much to mass death. We had over a million people dead from COVID. Um, probably most of us know someone pretty close. Um, and then, you know, in this moment of mass violence, um, we're a little too numb. So I just appreciate the emotion because we need to make sure we stop numbing ourselves to these life or death conditions at work in particular. So Don, um, with that, <laughs> here's a hard pivot. Um, I'm gonna come back to you to talk to us a little bit more about philanthropy and for folks that don't know, and you said this earlier, Irvine Foundation does a lot of work in California. California though, is an outlier in America. It has some of the most robust state labor laws and protections in the country. It's home to millions of workers. So you said, did you say 80% workers of color? Mm -hmm. It's just a slow wave workers are 80% workers. Wow, that's incredible. So from where you sit as the head of a foundation, you yourself have a storied career in social change. Talk to us a little bit about what you're learning in terms of what works and what doesn't work um, around the strategy to for a workers' bill of rights. For, high road, robust labor protections that are also enforced. It's like one thing to win the law, it's another thing to enforce the law. So what are you learning? Well, first, just to thanks uh, for the reference to my, my past work. I kind of cut my teeth in HIV activism in the 90s. And I just so, the stories you're telling resonate so both on the health front, but mm -hmm. also on the power of a small group of folks to be able to change the world, what it takes to have leaders be brave enough to do that. I just want to acknowledge that and thank all three of you for sharing those stories um, from a philanthropic perspective to get kind of technical as we look for the various kinds of outcomes sheer membership growth in worker organizing is an outcome it is a good thing labor um, or having folks in organ organized labor where they can experience leadership and feel empowered and get a sense that they can actually create that change in the world is a, a valid, viable outcome for us to be focused on. Um, we also focus on addressing where the implementation of wage laws and our laws have fallen down. So in California, we have been funding worker centers to address wage theft. Uh, wage theft for folks who don't know about in California, estimates are $2 billion a year of wage theft affects uh, low-wage workers uh, to the tune of about $3,300 per worker who loses wages, 600,000 workers affected. $3,300 for someone who makes 
uh, minimum wage is an enormous amount of money. Mm -hmm. uh, the worker centers in California, under the wonderful leadership of Judy Sue, who's now here in DC, created the Strategic Enforcement Partnership to enable workers with their worker organizers to bring wage theft claims forward, to feel comfortable that they can do that, and to be able to have those wage theft claims adjudicated. And frankly, pennies on the dollar get back into the pockets of the wage workers for a host of reasons, uh, one of which is understaffing in the implementation uh, of the uh, strategic enforcement partnership. And more folks need to be staffed in these agencies to deliver on the implementation that's required. The best uh, wage and hour laws and worker rights laws don't matter, as you uh, accurately point to, if they're not implemented, implemented well. We also see uh, uh, low-road employers shielding, in, shielding themselves from being uh, subject to enforcement by using contractors. So the up-the-chain liability is a really important piece of the puzzle, and we were fortunate in California to have government workers protected uh, in this way so that folks up the chain are liable for wage theft by the contractor. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, movement put there. I would say in the um, health space around uh, COVID, there was also an opportunity for one of these partnerships between in Los Angeles County, between the uh, Department of Public Health and worker centers to create uh, public health councils inside the workplace mm -hmm. so that uh, workers could um, have a formal mechanism for bringing forward violations of health and safety laws in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And we hope that will leave behind a legacy and a structure that could be piggybacked on for ongoing worker organizing in uh, workplaces like impacting as a good example and uh, the garment industry. Thanks, Don. Um, Ijen. As you've already mentioned, there are a whole lot of jobs that were deliberately excluded from labor protections in the 1930s, uh, domestic workers, agricultural workers. We kind of know something about who those workers happened to be at the time and the motivations for those exclusions. So talk to us about the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights and some lessons learned there. Um, obviously, it's an attempt to, a successful attempt you say 12 states, I think I heard 12 states, mm -hmm. um, to respond to like redesign of exclusions, right? And be inclusive. What are some lessons learned from all of these battles, mm -hmm. state after state, and then the national fight? What are some lessons learned from the domestic workers' bill of rights campaigns for us to take away in terms of the broader fight around mm -hmm. uh, workers' bill of rights for all workers? Well, first, um, the first thing that I thought of is just listening to Linda Jazz too. Before there was a pandemic, there was an epidemic of low-wage work mm. in this country, and um, nobody cared. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, because we were in a pandemic, um, we started to realize that these workers who didn't have sick days job security, health care, fair hours or consistent hours of work, they're actually essential mm -hmm. to our health, to our safety, to our well-being. And that frame mm -hmm. has given us the biggest opportunity of generations, I think, mm -hmm. um, to address the epidemic of low-wage work, which persists to this day. It has both given workers the confidence to organize and step forward, and it has given us a framework to talk about 
how unjust and nonsensical and unsafe, right, and unsustainable our dynamic of work is in this country. And, and workers are also organizing across sectors. And I think um, in Houston, a bunch of unions and work independent worker organizations came together and created an essential workers health and safety board where you actually have workers across sectors and the county government actually talking, setting the terms for how to manage through crisis and keep workers safe, right? Um, and not just pandemics, but also hurricanes and all of the things that we know are coming. Um, making sure that workers have a voice and a seat at the table. So it not only gave us a sense of confidence, but it gave us a sense of collective confidence as low-wage workers to assert the dignity of this work and to organize together. And I think what we're seeing is the beginnings of this wave. And at a time when we actually have the most pro-worker administration in the White House, maybe of generations, maybe ever, where the Department of Labor actually wants to enforce labor laws. And the great Julie Sue <laughs> left your state, sorry, but she's now um, a deputy secretary of labor at the US Department of Labor and is going to take all of these lessons from the co-enforcement work into that work. Um, and we have an NLRB that is actually favorable towards unions. Now we can talk about what some of the challenges are with the NLRA. And I think that that's what brings me back to the Bill of Rights, which is that um, we have to do everything within our power to enforce the existing labor laws and the protections that exist and make sure that they include protections for everyone, including domestic workers and all forms of excluded workers. And we have to recognize that these laws are no longer sufficient, that these laws are embedded inside of a deeply and profoundly unequal economy an unsustainable economic framework that is extractive of people's dignity. And so we need to be, I'm not, I, like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's enforce the laws we have, but let's also imagine what we need next. And with the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, what we've done at the federal level is try to do both, address the gaps in the 1930s protections, but also create a new framework that we call a Domestic Workers Standards Board, which establishes what some people call a sectoral bargaining framework, um, but basically the ability to bring a creative voice for workers as an entire sector and bring workers to the table with representatives of government and employers to talk about what fairness, dignity, <coughs> and respect looks like. So we're trying to innovate and create new frameworks. And I think that that's what this, this period is about as we strengthen the existing frameworks with measures like the PRO Act and others. Like, it's all necessary. And frankly, I think that we couldn't have enough initiatives to protect workers at this point. That is, it should be all hands on deck and a huge focus on that side. So listen, I know we're running a bit short on time. So I'm gonna do a final speed round. Um, so you just, I'm gonna ask you like, if you can in a minute or less, but I'm gonna just ask all the questions starting with you, Don, 
um, to give you a little time to think about it. Um, and also, if there's something you've heard from your colleagues in the course of this conversation that you also want to respond to, an open invitation to that. So here we go, speed round um, for you, Don. Um, as I said earlier, like if we looked out at the philanthropic landscape a decade ago, it would have been like a barren desert in terms of who is out there on workers' rights and worker power. So can you talk to us about um, what is changing in philanthropy in this moment and what still needs to change um, going forward? That's a question for you. Linda, you'll be second. Um, so you're in a union now, but you've also worked in other institutions that have partnered with unions and labor on these issues. What do you think unions and partners need to be doing right now and in the years ahead so that we don't lose the moment of worker organizing and worker upsurge? Ijen, um, <laughs> I'm gonna pack a punch into my question for you, which I want you to answer in a minute or less. Um, you were just such a visionary. I think I first heard the term care economy and care infrastructure from you. Um, but I also know you've been doing a lot of culture change work or narrative work. So I want you to talk to us about what is the role of cultural narrative strategies going forward in this work. And last but not least, Jazz. Um, what support and partnership has been helpful for you and your colleagues? And paint us a picture of five or 10 years from now, what will be the state of workers at Starbucks? Um, obviously an optimistic utopian picture is the idea. So Don, then Linda, then Ijen, then Jazz, and I'll turn it back over to Maureen. Oh, I can take a couple questions. Uh, amazing. Okay, audience, get ready. It's going to be speed round for you too. So, so I have seen a greater embrace of uh, investing philanthropic funds in advocacy and power. So I would think continuing that momentum, invest more in these great organizations who are doing this important work on the ground. It's important for the individuals in the organizations and for our economy and provide general operating support, flexible dollars, so these organizations can do their work on their terms. Um, I would say it's been interesting to see philanthropy begin to support more of these cross-sector partnerships around the implementation of existing laws and hopefully better uh, laws to be implemented in the future. Um, last thing, I'll, uh, two things I'll add with. One is with the tremendous infusion of public resources coming into communities between the bipartisan infrastructure law, ARP, and we're blessed in California with a tremendous budget surplus, there is an opportunity to recreate our economy and to define out crappy jobs and to define in jobs that pay family sustaining wages, have career mobility and upward pathways to better work. Um, and that are available to everyone, particularly people of color who have been left behind so systematically in our economy. And I have seen philanthropy begin to rally to help communities prepare for those dollars, to chart a just transition to a better economy for the future so that we can engineer in jobs that provide the kinds of dignity, wages, and supports that are here. Last thing I'll say to my philanthropic colleagues is we have to work with business. And it's interesting to see our growing ability to work with labor, if you will, uh, the Business Roundtable came out with its position on stakeholder capitalism, and yet I hear these horror stories about the way businesses are treating their workers. You can't say a thing and do nothing about it, and there's commitments to equity and racial equity, as well as building a more inclusive economy. Let's figure out how to do that. If they need risk capital, uh, they need relationship building, we can be a conduit for that, and we need to step into that space. Say all those words, Don. Yeah. Say all the words. Thank you. Um, Linda and then Ijen. Yeah, thank you. 
you know, I think we need to hold corporations accountable, um, put pressure on the CEOs of Starbucks and Amazons and other grocery companies so that they know that people in polite society are watching them and their behavior. And we need to pass the PRO Act. And most importantly, we need corporations to find their conscience. You know, they need to get on, you know, off the wrong side of history and stop fighting us when we're organizing and uh, standing up and taking collective action around health and safety and fair pay and get out of our way and let us organize. Thanks, Linda. Uh, well, I think that working people are obviously clearly the vast majority of this country. And um, we live in a country where 60% of the workforce earns less than $50,000 per year. So there's a lot of low-wage workers in this country. And we are incredibly powerful. That also means that we're a huge part of the market for the entertainment industry, we're consumers, we're, and so I just think we should be creative about how we organize. And I do believe that until we have a new story about work and what workers deserve and, um, and what a good job is in this country, um, where it's going to be a real struggle. And I do think that narrative and culture change is really about that. It's about how we start to collectively tell a new story about work and the dignity of work and what workers deserve. And there's a market for it. So just a quick antidote from my sector is that um, we've been partnering with the showrunner from the, the limited series called Made on Netflix. Have any of you seen it? Yeah. It is the most watched limited series in the history of television. <laughs> there is an appetite. People want to see working class stories because they identify wow. with them and because there is courage and bravery and dignity and dynamism. And, um, and that's what we need right now. Stephanie Land, shout out. I hope you're watching. <laughs> Jazz. So I mean, I want to say I am maybe sadly very pessimistic about, you know, um, labor law reform and the labor board. We've been dealing with a labor board in Buffalo where our regional director is married to a corporate union busting lawyer. That's a whole other thing. But I think going to what Linda said, we need accountability. You know, we need people to be calling, you know, people um, like Howard Schultz, the CEO, and Melody Hobson, the chair of the board of directors, are, you know, Democrats. Um, Howard Schultz was going to be Hillary Clinton's. Secretary of Labor, Melody Hobson, is friends with the Obamas and was just the commencement speaker at William and Mary and getting all of these accolades and also union pension dollars um, in her investment firm. Um, we need people to you know, hold them accountable and say, you can't get away with this. There was just a letter from 14 senators, I believe, that you know, actually condemned Starbucks union busting in you know, strong terms. So, there's a lot more senators who need to get on board with actually, you know, not just saying, hi, hey, we support you, union coffee is great, but actually saying, you know, we're not gonna let you terrorize workers. And if you continue to do this, there's gonna be real consequences. So I think we can, going back to your last point, in five or 10 years, we really can have, you know, every Starbucks worker in the country unionized and Starbucks workers united and, um, you know, a model for organizing the coffee shop and restaurant industry and you know really building an industrial union that can raise everybody's living conditions. But we need everybody's help to actually pressure these companies to stop terrorizing workers in the meantime. 
you said restaurant industry, shout out to Rocket, which is Restaurant Opportunity Center in the room as well. Um, okay, Maureen gave me permission to like two <laughs> quick questions. So um, if there's someone with a burning question that you can ask in like 45 seconds or less. <laughs> one. I'd love to hear else? from Sibby too, if he has any comments to add to this. And then we'll do Sibby too. Put you on the spot. Okay. Yes, please. Hi, thanks for uh, this event. And I have a quick question for Linda. I'm, I'm Dennis Olson with the USCW in the meatpacking division here at the International. And I first met John Grant over 10 years ago, working on the good food purchasing policy in LA, which was um, first invented there. And so I was going to ask Linda what her thoughts are on how the role of public procurement and, and requiring union preference and other preferences societal. Fantastic question, Linda. Uh, thank you, Dennis. I mean, I think, you know, public institutions, uh, you know, and public purchasing is roughly $2 trillion that is spent each year by public institutions on purchasing. And I think there is a tremendous opportunity here to ensure that there are standards built in to ensure that public taxpayer dollars are going to high road employers and ensuring that once, you know, products and, and goods are bought, that they also create jobs in low income communities of color, right? And um, that communities benefit from those tax dollars being spent, you know, um, in those same sort of places. Okay, mine would be most, uh, most likely comment uh, to say I really support everything that Can I have you to. Yourself, please, yes, please. Uh, my name is Sekou I am the president and CEO of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers. Uh, been a founding member organization as having been a restaurant worker myself at Windows on the Wall. So I'm very pleased to be here. <clears throat> so I, I really want to emphasize what I've been saying about um, the restaurant workers. It is very important. They have suffered a lot. We have uh, workers who died on the floor during, uh, in 2020 uh, because they didn't have PPE, they didn't have healthcare. And uh, it was a choice to make between going to work and to feed your family or stay home and, uh, you know, with children, hope you cannot feed. So, so many things have happened that we believe in building worker power today. And because those workers have suffered so much, because nobody was there to help them, because at the same time when everybody was staying at home, they were the one going to work. And they have that anger and that desire to see things change. So we are asking ourselves to be like, why is it possible to organize workers? It is because they want to be organized. They really want to see things change and they want to be involved. We just need to have enough people who are talking to them, who are organizing them, who are making things possible. And that's really key to make changes possible. So again, uh, for us, that power building will require all of us right, to come together as one to say these uh, building worker power and making sure that all of them come together will be critical for tomorrow's business world of what we want the workers to be tomorrow. So again, I really want to thank all these folks and thank you for all the perspective that came out today and the restaurant workers are the lowest also of the lowest workers. They are in the peak of it. And I would like to thank you for giving me a chance to say this word. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
Thank you. And that's a great place to close. And um, so Linda, Ijen, John, Jarris, thank you so much for this conversation. And um, please join me in thanking them as well. Yeah, huge thanks. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to all of you for giving us ideas that all of us are in this. And we don't have to be really optimistic. We don't have to be really pessimistic. We have things we can do and choices we can make. Um, so I really appreciate everybody's um, just huge engagement in this conversation and all you've given us to, to think about. So big thanks to uh, my, on behalf of the Aspen Institute, to Dan, Ijen, John, Jazz, and Linda. Thank you, Dorian. Well done. Um, thanks to my colleagues, Julie Chang, Colin Cunningham, Amanda Fence, Matt Helmer, Adrian Lee, Tony Mastria, Victoria Prince, Yuri Chang, Natalie Foster, Shelly Stewart, and Sin Young for all of their help. Let me tell you, it has taken a lot of people, a lot of work to put these events on. Um, I have an amazing team. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to everybody who joined us virtually today. Um, I could prevail upon these people to talk with us all day. I did propel and going over a little bit and thank you for indulging us all that way. Um, and um, love to hear people's feedback on our events. If you have thoughts to share with us, um, if you're online, you can use the Slido the polls thing on your Slido tab. Um, you can always send us a note, eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. We love to hear from you. We love your feedback, ideas, other things we should be talking about. Let us know. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.